Hey lovelies, before we get started, a quick update on the All-American dress. Some sizes are sold out and most sizes are running very low. This is especially true for sizes 12 plus, I want to say like 12 through 24. As always, if your size is sold out, then be sure to sign up for the wait list. I am, I am anticipating returns and lovelies will be notified of restocks in the order they sign up for the wait list. So the sooner you sign up, the better. I do it this way to avoid the mad dash that is a restock notification when there's really only one or two for, you know, dozens of people. It's Trust me, it's less stressful this way, so just get yourself on that list as early as possible. If you're not familiar with the All-American dress, it is my most perfect version of the classic denim shirt dress, featuring a classic shirt collar, flared shape, slight puff sleeve, and gold stitching details. I also included extra considerations for modesty, like an extended inner placket for coverage between and behind the buttons. Oh, and you're welcome because it has pockets. Constructed from a durable and timeless dark blue denim, this is your year-round go-to dress any day of the week. You can view it anytime at impactfashionnyc.com. I've also included a direct link in the show notes. Thanks so much for your continued support and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. It's good. And on today's show, I talk with a perhaps unconventional Rebbitson about her role. She shares her own naivete, how her tour classes became a point of contention between her husband and his boss. We also discuss the fear of a smart woman in a position with a title as she speaks publicly for the first time about her husband's firing. Avital Chizik Goldschmidt's husband, Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt, was fired from his position after 10 years at the Parkey Synagogue. My heart broke for the whole family. There was media involvement, a huge to-do, and their lives were abruptly and publicly upended. I'm a fan of context and also of Avital's, so we sat down to discuss it, along with the role of the rabbi's wife in 2022. Hi there, it's good to see you again. I know, it's very good to see you again. And so this is, it's unusual that I have repeat guests. Um, which I feel honored, um, but I also felt like when we when we spoke last time, and I am going to link your original episode in um, in the show notes so that anyone who wants to hear about that part of your life can go and hear about it. You are a fantastic writer and reporter who tackles really important issues uh, in the Jewish community, specifically in the Orthodox community, and it's a really, really great episode. You're also one of my first interviews, so thank you for that. Two years later, I'm a little bit better at this now, so I appreciate that. <laughs> And today we're going to talk about something completely different. Um, you are you you are a, a rebbitzin, which for anyone who's not familiar is like it just means rabbi's wife basically. Um, and you married into a pretty prominent rabbinate. Um, at the time that you got married, your husband was the assistant rabbi at the Parkey Synagogue, and you were kind of thrown into this role of rabbi's wife and everything that that means. And I am fascinated by this for a bunch of reasons. We were actually talking before we started recording that, um, you know, my, I come from a long line of, of rabbis and my grandmother talks a lot about how, like when she was 19, she married my grandfather and became also like a Rebbitzin. And it was very strange for her. And I'm curious what your transition into this was. And like, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Um, no, that's the short answer. Um, you know, it's funny when my husband and I had a funny, uh, dramatic courtship, uh, which you could read about also 
in the New York Times. Um, and one of the, <clears throat> we went out two rounds. We had a two year break. And the second time around, um, we, our, the first date, the second time around that we decided, well, we would give it a try again. Literally, like there was zero small talk, zero chatter. It was like, he immediately got to the point and he was like, how are you going to deal with being a rabbi's wife? How are you going to, he was already an assistant rabbi at the time. Um, you know, how are you going to deal with the, you know, the spotlight and the, the fact, you know, you're always on and, um, you know, and you have your own career and how are we going to work this out together? <clears throat> he was very worried about that um, because he himself comes from a rabbinic family, a prominent rabbinic family, and he knew well what this whole role entails. Uh, I was sort of like, I was naive. Um, I come from a family. My parents became observant as I grew up. So it wasn't, it was sort of like I was a little bit in the margins. I didn't really know, I think, what it meant to be a Rebbitzin, like deeply, innately. I knew kind of, and I imagined it to be this very meaningful, very wholesome um, expression of like a passionate, authentic Judaism, um, one that involves opening your home and just giving to people and being there for people, et cetera. But I did not imagine uh, the level of stress and politics and all that that comes into these sorts of roles. So yeah, he tried to warn me, but I don't think I understood it um, until I was actually in it. And even as I was in it, there have certainly been layers of naivete that have had to sort of been peeled off. I'm sure. I remember when we were discussing, like when we were last recording, is that you know, mm -hmm. you are, you t took a pretty strong, you take, I should say, a pretty strong political bent in a lot of your writings. And that a lot of that was at odds with you lean, I, I'm going to guess a little bit more. You're, you're not, I'm not going to call you a liberal because you are not, but you definitely lean more liberal than a lot of the congregation um, yeah. that your husband at the time was, um, I guess, somewhat leading. I don't know if that's the right word for an assistant rabbi, but like, and that how that created problems within like your writing, your speaking out created problems for him. And that's a lot of balls to keep up in the air. Yeah. Um, I mean, to this day, everything is you sort of, you, you lead a, a very, uh, I don't know if it's unusual in the age of social media, but you do start to, you think about every little thing. You think about everything you say, you know, everything I post on social media is going to be screenshotted and sent around um you know and I've, I've gone through that i've had that that level of scrutiny uh which i think any not any many women experience already by being visible religious women experience that i think even more um because you're dealing with a more close-knit community that tends to be more conservative and then you have like being a rabbi's wife which is like can you believe she said x um can you believe she wore that? Can you believe she, she was with this person? Uh, there's always sort of that type of scrutiny. Um, so yeah, it's, it, and, and certainly politically it's gotten complicated and, and not just politically, you know, a lot of times on, on gender issues, I, I'm, I'm very worried about a lot of, um, you know, women's issues as, as we have discussed over the years. And that is sort of, 
um, not what people want to hear in certain circles. So, and certainly not from the rabbi's wife, whom they expect to be busy just planning luncheons and organizing flower arrangements. Right. It's not how they imagine. Like we, we take this kind of, I don't want to say antiquated, but to a certain extent, like the parameters of the role were established in like old European villages. And then we stick it in 2022 and some things are just not going to match up. It's, it's just not going to translate so well. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of it, the way that we see the quote unquote rabbits in today is actually um, from my reading and research is actually very American. um, And it's very, it's very 20th century. Um, So you had, and what's interesting is that there's a lot of overlap with uh, pastors' wives, ministers' wives uh, over the last few centuries in the United States. Uh, If you read diaries and letters of pastors' wives, um, I want to say since the 19th century, you will see a lot of interesting, like shockingly familiar um, parallels with what it's like to be a rabbi's wife. So there is this sort of... um, and that's a longer conversation about history and Protestantism and sort of like where women fit in into the ideal Protestant family and Protestant house of worship. Um, but I think as in any diaspora, uh, we are not immune to that, you know, to those effects. Um, we are more assimilated than we realize. Um, so I think a lot of how we envision rabbis' wives uh, especially over the course of the 20th century, and this is true across Jewish denominations, uh, was very much fitting into that specific role, you know, like what Hillary Clinton used to joke about, you know, I'm not going to stay home and bake cookies. That was sort of the the ideal role. Um, a woman who hosts teas and uh, welcomes women into her home, perhaps, <laughs> for social gatherings, uh, perhaps you organize volunteering projects. Um, you know, nowadays, I would say in the uh, in the Orthodox community, one of the most popular programs that Rebitsons runs uh, is a challah bake, right? Uh, we all get together and just bake. Those are relatively uh, new, huh? I don't know how new it is, but it's grown in popularity. It's right. certainly popularity. There's like a hands-on activity. It's something that anyone can relate to and, you know, sort of just get into, right? You don't need a religious or scholarly background. It's not, it's not sitting in a Torah class. Um, and you, you talk with your friends and you get a mitzvah and you get bread. When you take home. All um, good things. All good things. And they're wonderful. Um, and I, you know, I've done them and I go to them, but you know, it's, it's not really my style. Like at a certain point, my husband said to me, like, you know, that's, you could do that, but that's, that's not, you know, what people are looking for from you. Um, and I think he's right. Yeah. I think that also, I mean, as someone who has benefits benefited so much just from, you know, reading your work and, and listening to, you know, some of your classes and things like that, you are a fantastic teacher. Um, and you are someone like when you said, oh yes, I've researched the role of the rabbi's wife in the 19th century. I'm not at all surprised by that. This doesn't like, that's just, that's how you connect. And, and it also, you know, that's, that's just who you are. And, and at a, at a certain point, I think that we should fill anyone in who doesn't know is that um, your husband is no longer employed by the Park East Synagogue. As right. of, um, we're recording this in January. So as of a couple of months ago, um, mm-hmm. that that little, that fun little thing happened. Um, and yes. <laughs> exactly. And there, in the lead up to when 
to when that happened, to when he was unceremoniously fired, you your Torah classes became a point of contention um, yeah. in in all of that. Talk me through what that was like. Wow. Um, this is actually the first time I'm ever talking about this um, publicly. Uh, it, it took me a few months to sort of come to the point where I was ready to. Um, I think the short version of the story is I was asked uh, repeatedly by women in the community to, to teach more. Um, now, this was something that I frankly never had time for. <laughs> I had two babies, uh, you know, two toddlers, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I was working full time at a very uh, intense job as an editor at the forward. Um, and I was also teaching in the evenings in my spare time, I was teaching journalism at Stern College. Uh, on top of the usual weekend social life that, you know, is sort of expected of a rabbi's wife, which is hosting Shabbos, going to shul on Shabbos and putting on your face and, you know, often going to not just simchas, bar mitzvahs, weddings and brises, et cetera, but also shivas or funerals, if I can make it, as well as charity dinners. So the last thing I needed was this extra project. Um, but there was a real need. Uh, there were several different needs. Uh, one was working with bat mitzvah aged girls um, who for whom there was no real program in the community. Um, there was like, you know, a tutor who taught them to read the Torah, but most of them at that point, to read the half Torah, sorry. That was sort of what some families opted to do. Um, but there was nothing sort of spiritual, female, et cetera. Um, and the mothers approached me saying, listen, our daughters are turning 12 and we don't have anything for them. Would you do something? And I said, sure. Um, we'll, we'll try to put something together. So I created a curriculum <clears throat> and I opened up this sort of very high very homey type of program around my dining room table. Um, you know, once every few weeks we would have around, I think it was 10 mothers and 10, and 10 daughters and we would do a mother's daughter learning. Uh, we, we spoke about women in the Tanakh in the Bible. Um, we talked about, you know, various sort of preteen teenage issues, body image, social media, beauty, and Torah. Um, just preparing that curriculum alone was like, I don't know when I have, when I found that time, but this was sort of, this was like my little volunteer project that I was going to do that I felt like, okay, this is something that is really niche that I could fill in that isn't really being met. Um, and I'm going to just volunteer my time for that. And this became a massive, massive vote of contention. Uh, I, I think there were several reasons for that. Uh, one was that I, I think there was a fear overall. There was a fear of someone like me doing that work. Um, I, you know, I, I was also, I am a journalist. I am, you know, sort of an outspoken type of person. I'm not, you know, just like a, just you know, a quiet sort of sweet, you know, simple type of um, rabbit sit, I guess. Um, and there was this sort of, I think there was this larger fear of like just a woman in any position of any influence, even though it was sort of a joke. Like I was literally teaching a bunch of bat mitzvah girls and their moms in my dining room. This is not exactly high level, you know, high power on the Upper East Side, but <coughs> It became a massive issue. Uh, my husband 
was called in and screamed at um, that he's that I'm not allowed to do this and like you know and what am I doing and um, and and it it was it became an issue that that grew I think over the years um, then the adult women also wanted their own classes so I would try to create Torah classes for them as well um, and this just became a massive issue there was just this discomfort with you know, with, with just any sort of women's programming that was not sitting at a luncheon, you know, listening to speeches and whatever the Upper East Side in the 1960s thought was normal for a woman to do. Um, I'm a big believer, as you said, I'm, I'm a big reader. I'm a writer. I'm a big believer in the importance of intellectual stimulation and, re and retaining a connection with Torah that is meaningful and not just spiritual, but, but really that makes you continue to think. And I think a lot of why women after a certain age sort of become very distanced from going to shul or being connected to community is that they're not, they don't have that continued education. Um, and I see that in myself, by the way. I say that as someone who feels that way myself. When I'm not learning, I, I feel distant. I'm not growing. I'm not thinking through. Um, so, and you know, and there was a pretty clear corollary. I mean, these, the synagogue, there were, the women's balcony was empty, except for, you know, some older women, but you didn't have women coming under age 60, basically, no one came. Um, so that was something I was really, we were really trying to, to work on, um, but it became a very big issue. Um, you know, my husband's former boss threw him out for reasons in addition to this, um, I think he was very popular and successful and that was threatening. Um, but the interesting thing here was really the gender piece, which was that there was this total discomfort with female anything to the extent that people started calling me Rebbitson in the community and my husband's boss would scream at them and tell them, don't call her Rebbitson, just call her Avital. You know, and it was sort of weird, like, why why is that why is that problematic <laughs> like they right. I, I never even had a title i never in insisted on a title i like used it as a joke you know because that is a part of my identity at this point for god's sake i've been here you know for seven years sweating like you know my blood sweat and tears going into as much as i can do of course it's going to be part of my identity but i never actually even felt like I, I wanted a title or anything, but some, a lot of the women started calling me that. Um, you know, people started coming with questions and discussions and to learn, etc. I was learning with brides, I was learning with women of all ages. And um, yeah, they were told you're not allowed to call her Rebidson. <laughs> Which is weird so because think, you're effectively filling that role. Of course. But I think a lot of it was this fear. What I took from it was this just a fear of a woman in a position with a title. Um, that was sort of unacceptable. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, because this is a modern Orthodox synagogue on the Upper East Side. This is not, you know, this is not an ultra-Orthodox community where there will be other issues around women, right? This is a, a community where, you know, the younger women pursue careers and educations and they, you know, they rise and, their professional spheres, but sort of within any religious context, there was no room for any female involvement. 
Right. You use the phrase someone, I think they were uncomfortable with someone like me doing that work. What do you mean by that? Do you think that because you're so particularly outspoken, like that in and of itself was threatening? Or was it just like the fact that you're not a man? What, what Expound on that for me. Can I be blunt? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think being female, being smart, being, you know, yeah, having a voice. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that mouthy. I think like I, I'm very you're so measured I'm, I'm which is measured. like I'm way too reserved people always tell me that you know that's like that's the rebbiton in me by the way because I've had to train myself to be more measured but yeah I'm like extremely reserved in many ways people don't I mean my, my close friends see that in me um but I, I think it was just an intelligent woman who actually knows Torah who actually know has ideas you know who's you know not just I was never the type of woman who just, um, you know, I guess kissed the ring. I was just sort of like, I, I can, I can hold my own, you know. Um, and I think that bothered uh, a few individuals. <laughs> uh, I don't think it bothered. I think you know, most of the community. We really had a wonderful, wonderful relationship with the community, and this decision was made by one person, um, not by the community, which is a whole other story, but. You know, and this is why we're staying on Upper East Side. We're not leaving because the, these are, you know, our friends and our, really our friends, you know. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was just the fear of smart women. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I found myself running into that a lot in, in other contexts, not in a religious context, because I don't like operate in that religious sphere. But time and time again, especially when I was building up the company that it was just just people that were shocked that I actually yeah. knew what I was talking about like just confused by that fact and you're like I I do know how to make clothes like I do you know, know how to bounce a checkbook yeah. right like I know what I'm talking about and that and it and yeah it throws people off in a and lot of different contexts way, in, in a lot young. of different ways you know because yeah. like after a certain point in in life you could maybe you know demand that but when you're young and you're you know, you're, you're bursting with ideas and with whatever knowledge you're taking in, you're processing it and it's coming out, you know, and, and people don't want that. People like I was, the expectation for me was always to be busy with manicures and getting my hair done and just, you know, looking very polished and, um, showing up to social events as arm candy you know, and I, that, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me. And I also, it's not just, it's not just not me. It's that I think the future, <coughs> the future doesn't have much room for that. I think, and I saw this up front, you know, young women don't, are not really looking for that. They want someone they can actually have a conversation with about something that's not the weather. You know, they want someone who's going to actually discuss an idea with them. And I'm not saying, you know, we're discussing Kierkegaard or Nietzsche. I'm just saying, like, you know, something thoughtful and genuine. And 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 that was, you know, in these, for, for some people, that was just not, that was not something they could handle. It's, it's an interesting way to frame it also, because, yeah, like, I'm thinking to my mm -hmm. friends and... Yeah, I, I mean, we love a manicure as much as the next gal, but it's not our, like, it's not the most exciting part of our sure. day. In fact, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the ladies who right. lunch thing. 
it's it's not really a thing anymore. I mean, I'm sure it's a thing for some people, not anyone who I am have anything yeah, to do with. Listen, but like, who knows? Maybe it's I'm not just like plebeian. I wasn't. I mean, I was spending way too much time and money and all these things, and I still do. Um, I spent last night at Chip Priani's and Wall Street, and the night before at Capital for a charity dinner. Like I'm, I'm still in the game, and I know you know. I'm still wearing the five inch heels and I'm, you know, still balancing that. And I think maybe perhaps that may be part of the fear also is when you have someone who knows, okay, someone who can be comfortably, proudly feminine, however you want to describe that, and actually also have a brain. I think that combination is what scares people. That's an, in- that's interesting. What do you talk, talk to me more about that? What do you mean by that? Because I think if I was sort of like this acerbic professorial, you know, um, or like very, <coughs> I don't know what the right word is, like monastic or something, you know, type of Robinson, people, it would be more comfortable, right? But like, yeah, like I, 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 I can teach a Torah class in Louboutins, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like, that is the title totally. of a memoir right there. And it's fine. <laughs> I mean, whatever. We can talk about materialism separately, and I have a lot to say in that as well. Um, but but the point is that, like, there's something, you know, there's something, I guess, threatening in that, especially in a community where those things really matter, right? Where, where, right. where outsideness, where externalities matter a lot, where certain signs matter. Um, Edith Wharton has this great line that... Um, you know, they lived in a world where of basically of like hieroglyphics where the, everything was communicated through signs and never communicated actually by word. Um, and I often think about that on Upper East Side, that's true. Um, so I, you know, I think when, when someone knows, can speak those hieroglyphics fluently, but also talk about, you know, a controversial issue or, <coughs> or just, teach Torah as simple as that is I think that combination is sort of like I don't know it's intimidating it's easier to it's easier if you were like less put together or to be blunt like uglier then it would be easy that like you wouldn't let's get real there's a certain currency in the way that a woman dresses and looks that gets her a certain level of respect that can at the very least get her listened to or looked at for good or for better or for worse and when you have that currency and you're able to speak that language and then you open your mouth and people are actually listening to what you're saying because you've you know you've earned that step in that's that's really powerful that's something that has real potential yeah, for change. i think there is there's potential for change and there are there are great examples of women um i, I mean i think of women in politics usually when i think of women who've done that um but there are a lot of great examples of women who have really t- sort of taken that that way, who 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 are able to to navigate between all of those hieroglyphics, right? All of those signs, all of those minds, in a way. And and again, we can talk about the patriarchy of of that whole world and the fact that we even have to go by that um, separately. But the, that is the reality, right? And like I think also the way I look at women in Tanakh is also very much along those lines, like women were served, a cer- there was a certain societal reality and they had to figure out how to work within those boundaries. And I, I think in a, it's a very contemporary, very timeless rea- um, 
narrative to look at because that's that's the truth for us women today as well, right? So I think when when people see that, that's threatening, but also <coughs> threatening or powerful. Um, and I think there's also this sort of other thing which I will, someone mentioned to me recently, um, which is that I think because of the hurdles that are placed in front of women um, in any society, there are just so many, you have to try so much harder as a woman to, to do well, to succeed, to have an impact, whatever it is in any industry, in any field, in any community. And when some men who are insecure about themselves see that in women, especially a young woman who's actually like going forward and, and growing and, you know, by bounds and by leaps, and they realize, oh, like she's actually, you know, maybe more successful or more smart or whatever it is than me. And I got here only because of my sort of whatever privileges that I had. That's also terrifying. Like I, I remember getting right. a lot, a lot of comments always on how, um, you know, I'm a child of Russian immigrants and I should be grateful that I'm even like I was even allowed to be in this like circle. Um, that was a constant theme as well, <coughs> and I always felt like, yeah, I'm I'm a child of immigrants and that's why I'm sort of you know, the person that I am, it formed me, it gave me a certain resilience that I think others might not have. Right. And, and that, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, it's just an interesting, it's just all this stuff is such a weird way to just frame the way that we look at people. And I think that to a certain extent, like, listen, as women, we don't think, I don't think that we think about these issues as, or at least I know for myself, I don't think about these issues so, so much. I just live my life and then deal with the consequences of how people see me. And there have been times when I've kind of turned around and I'd be like, oh, wow, you really do think that that's really dumb. And then kind yeah. of move on. But you're right. There are these kind of overarching themes that you need to, I guess, maybe if I was a little bit more aware of them, I would put my foot on my mouth. Yeah, a little no, less often. I think they come, they come in hindsight, you know, they're coming to hindsight now right. like I'm sort of like standing back and reflecting on seven years of incredible moments but also extremely stressful moments and to be honest abuse so like there there has been it's been a very very intense chapter it's I mean I now I think back and I can't believe I spent my 20s like this I just turned 30 um and you know, my first year of marriage was dealing with this, you know, like there was no Shana Rishona, there was no honeymoon, like there actually was no honeymoon, my honeymoon was canceled because we had to be in shul, they told us we're not allowed to leave, like that, you know, I, I lived under total control, <clears throat> and it was very glamorous, sure, at certain moments, but there was a lot of, you know, there was, a, there was a dark side to it as well, and I'm only now kind of processing what that means, um, and also sort of, yeah, I mean, the question that you kind of started this conversation with about the, 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 the role that gender played in this story, um, it's a serious question because that was, that was a big part of the story. Um, and I, I mean, my relationship with the media right now is fraught as well because it was very uncomfortable for the first time in my life being at the center of a story where I'm used to being a reporter and now suddenly I'm in the story. 
Um, but some of the journalists sort of did touch on this, um, but it, it was, it was, I would say, a big part of it. Um, but again, these are things that you only realize, I think, in hindsight, and also when you have some distance and some space to process. You know, one of my mentors, who's a very respected Torah educator, <laughs> took me aside not long ago and said, Avital, you know that you're traumatized. You know this is trauma. Like, what you are going through right now is trauma. I was like, I don't want to think about it that way because trauma seems to be something that happens to people in, you know, in, in more, you know, in more egregious situations. But maybe she is right. And maybe, you know, there is that time to process and understand in hindsight is necessary. Right. You mentioned you did this, you know, the, you and your husband did this job for seven years until he was fired. Um, until you were both fired, honestly. Well, I wasn't paid. If it was. Uh, he, he, he was there <laughs> true. for two years before. So he was there at 10 years. He's the longest surviving assistant rabbi at Parkview Synagogue since World War II. That's a very interesting use of words mm -hmm. right there. The. If. If it, at any point during those the seven years, I'll speak yeah. to your experiences. Your husband is not here to speak to his. At any point during those seven years, did you think we, we have to leave? This is not working? Yes, definitely. Why didn't you? There were a few shuls that reached out over the years that were recruiting us. Um, in those moments, there was just not the right time. Um, we frankly, we, we, did we did have conversations with them. Um, we did also speak to, you know, Das Torah. We did speak to sort of great rabbis that my husband really respects, that we both respect uh, for their insight. And every time it was sort of, we made this conscious decision that as difficult as things are, we're going to stay put. Um, you know, this is, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, every shul, every community has its issues. And the amount of rabbis and relatives who reached out to us over the last few months to express their, you know, concern, but also empathy and sort of just, I was overwhelmed by the amount of uh, personal stories that sort of came out um, privately to me, but just sort of people saying like, you know, um, I've, I've been in a situation like this. We were also thrown out. There was no severance. There was nothing. We were literally on the street. I mean, lots of crazy stories of how rabbinic families were treated. Um, and not that all rabbis are great and all and do things right. And obviously there are, there are those who do things really badly, which is what I've see, experienced just now. But I think you know, there, there, there are no, it's really hard to be in, in a job where there are basically no safeguards. There's no protection with you. Um, my husband was working for 10 years without a contract, though we begged for a contract for years. Um, you know, those, but those were, I mean, not having a contract is very unusual. <clears throat> Most people do, but, but there are a lot of really crazy stories of what happens, um, to rabbinic families and and those started coming out like people really go through really difficult times and i think a lot of it is you have to understand this isn't just a job it's a life and these become your friends and your family we did not have shop we had three shabbos off a year 
Okay. So we barely saw our families for seven years. We like, you know, and, and this becomes your family. These become your people. And then the most painful part is what happens when, you know, something breaks and, and, you know, there are egos and there's jealousy and whatever it is. And then, and then some of these people who you thought were your closest friends, the people who, you know, your, my husband was burying their parents during a pandemic alone and suddenly they disappear and suddenly they, you know, and you're just like, wait, I just gave everything. You know, I, I killed myself to be at this event. I killed myself to make, you know, I, I was falling asleep. I was, you know, pregnant with a baby and like, you know, to make that phone call or something. And like, you just can't even pick up the phone and call me when I'm in my darkest moment. Um, that I think is the most traumatizing piece of all. Um, so I think, and, and that's why, that, that's what seemed to come out from all these people contacting me over the last months. Uh, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. I'm sure everyone came out of the woodwork in the best and worst ways. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, listen, locally, communally, thank God, like, (laughs) as things go, we've been overwhelmed with blessing and gratitude and support. Um, you know, people really went to bat for us and understood very clearly what happened. Um, but you know, there, there were definitely some disappointments, um, and you just, and they're, they have their own reasons for that. Um, but, but it, it, it's like a larger thing. I think it's, it's, it's sort of swallowing that overcoming naivete about relationships. All of that is a big part of what I think the secret life of the rabbit it often is about. Right. One of the things that you pointed out a couple of, I think it was a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so just a little bit of background for someone who may not be yeah. familiar. A, someone who wears mm-hmm. a black hat is a, it's an, it's an indicator, I guess, of, well, I don't even know how to explain this, but it's wearing a black hat is a thing. If you, you know, if you've like Googled Orthodox Jews, chances are you've seen this, like the type of Borsalino that I'm talking about. And, and it does signify for men kind of like a belonging to a certain, I guess, like more yeshivish yeah. group. Um, and your husband has recently started wearing yeah. one again, um, which a lot of people notice. I got to say, it looks fantastic <laughs> on him. I have to say the first couple of times I saw it on and I was like, this is working for him. This is great. Um, this was so something like that, which is like, you would think it's, it's a stupid hat. Why does it really matter? Um, when he was at Park East was something that he was asked not to do, I'm assuming, or was, it was discouraged for him to do that. I'm, I'm curious how these kind of subtle cues, like that's, it's, it's a personal decision that has this very outwardly appearance. And now that you're no longer there is something that he's kind of free to do. And, and what that has meant for all you guys as a family. Yeah. I think we're beginning to realize what freedom is like. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Someone recently came up to me. So to fast forward a few months since this whole controversy happened, um, about a week after, two weeks after um, this exploded, we started our own minion. Um, This was also because people from the community reached out and said, we feel we have nowhere to pray now, we have nowhere to dive in. Um, You know, where are you gonna dive in? And we were like, we don't know. We literally don't know. Our whole life is in shambles. Um, And, And then we decided, okay, you know what, let's, we'll just start 
you know, we'll have a minion so that we at least have somewhere, you know, to gather. And it's been incredible. I mean, we, we've been overwhelmed with um, this amazing energy of people, of all types of Jews, people, you know, Haredi Jews and secular Jews equally, you know, and everyone in between. Um, just, just like there for the right reasons, you know, um, and just like really to Davin, to learn, to connect with people in a safe space that's like, you know, meaningful, genuine, no rigidity, no formality, just a very different vibe. Um, and one of the things that I was shocked at, the, maybe it was like the third Shabbos that we, or second, I don't remember anymore. One of the early Shabbatot that we did that, <coughs> we rented a beautiful space in the neighborhood um, and we had like over 200 people show up. It was like a wedding and I was like walking around talking to people and welcoming them and just, and this woman walked up to me, this woman who had known me for all these years. And she said, I'm so happy for you. And I was like, you're happy for me? I mean, I'm happy, but like, it's a crazy situation. She was like, no, she's like, <clears throat> I saw you there. I saw you there and you look like a caged bird. And the way you spoke to people and the, you could see it in your smile, you could see it in your eyes, you were, you and your husband were controlled. And I was like, I, I couldn't believe that someone like this had picked it up. And it's not someone I spoke much with or, you know, it, it was, it was surprising how much she picked up on. And a few people have said similar things to me um, over the last few months, sort of reflecting on those years saying, and like, they now see me in a different context and they're like, oh, you're much more, you know, you're much more free. You're much more relaxed. You're much more natural. You're, you know, I, I, I can't even describe what some of those years were like in contrast. Um, and, and I think, and, and that's really the feeling right now, as difficult as it is, really just focusing on, on teaching Torah and providing what people need and, um, and it's a very freeing moment to be able to be who we are authentically and not have to silence parts of ourselves that we did have to do for those years. Um, and those parts include something as simple as a black hat. Yeah, it's, it was, when I saw it, I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot behind that hat. Because because I, I had only ever like seen, I don't I don't know you know, your family very well. I don't know your husband really at all, but I, whenever I'd, I, it was the first time I'd ever seen him wearing it. And I was like, that looks comfortable on his head. And I bet you that there's more yeah. behind he, it. He grew up in that world. You know, he grew, grew up in a rabbinic family. Uh, he went on to spend years learning Torah in Bnei Brak in the Panavish Yeshiva and then in Yerushalayim in the Chavron Yeshiva. And then he went to Lakewood. Like you can't, you know, he was really, you really can't get more black hat. Yeah, you can't get more, you know, I think whatever black hat means. Like, and and I have my criticisms of that world, but in the end of the day, there is a certain thing that that hat symbolizes. Um, and it is this like proud, <coughs> sorry. It's this proud, you know, absolutely unapologetic devotion to Torah to the world of Torah, at the end of the day, to God, to the service of God. Um, 
and and I'm proud of it. I'm I'm so proud of it. I'm I'm proud of of his Torah. I'm proud of his studies. I'm proud of who he is as a rock. What are you hoping to get out of this minion that you've started? What are you hoping to accomplish with it? We have a lot of dreams. Um, how do I encapsulate it as as succinctly as possible? Um, we want to create. I mean, I think we already have, thank God, a community where any Jew feels comfortable. First of all, um, I think, and that's that's not uh, something to be taken for granted in this neighborhood, uh, where some shuls require that you wear a tie if you want to get an aliyah or whatever. Like there are certain social expectations. Um, like we we want to move away from that rigidity. Um, we want to move away from, I think, what a lot of modern Orthodox schools do, which is a focus on, um, on politics. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, the sort of platitudes that every modern Orthodox rabbi talks about. Support Israel and remember the Holocaust. Um, so we really believe that the next generation needs something very different. That, as I said before, that Torah is really the most important thing. Um, meaningful, lively Torah, at its source, Torah without shtick, without gimmick, right? People really want to learn. Like, I, I cannot tell you how many people from all types of backgrounds, like you would be shocked, have come saying, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to learn this text, this rich, you know, heritage that I have never had the blessing to have access to. Um, we've seen that time and time again. Uh, and that's really what we want to focus on. Um, Another thing that I'm thinking a lot about is obviously I'm thinking about the women's side of the mechitza and uh, what women need, whether it is drop-off babysitting during davening or um, real women's Torah classes. Those are things that I really, um, you know, I really, I really believe are necessary for our generation. And I, a lot of these things we sort of come to sort of asking ourselves, well, what do we what would we want? What would we need as congregants, right? As what would what would draw us to shul? Um, and I think in a post-COVID reality, that is a really, um, a really big question. Like like our shuls will look different. Um, COVID has affected things. A lot of people are out of practice going to shul. <clears throat> so I think that means that synagogues have to work. All houses of worship have to work extra hard. Um, in bringing people to shul, uh, in, in, in making religion exciting. And, um, and that's good. I think that's great. I think competition is healthy. I think if we're truly capitalist, then we believe that competition, you know, in a free market is the thing that should be, you know, that, that creates, that, that spurs creativity and um, everyone works harder that way. Yeah, everyone and everyone and the quote consumer or the congregant yeah. in this case ends up with a better product Absolutely. as a result of that Absolutely. Um, and a better experience. Yeah. yeah, this has been fascinating and eye-opening and a pleasure as always. If somebody wants to learn more about you, Avital, where they can, can they go? You can find me on my Instagram and on my Twitter, Avital Rachel, A-V-I-T-A-L Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L. Um, and you can go on my website if you want to send me a private email. 
I'm happy to be in touch. Fantastic. Last thing that I want to ask you is, uh, Avital, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Um, to make an impact is, I think is an end of the day is to be, is, is to be memorable, whether a conscious memory or a subconscious memory. Um, you know, if you, if you can affect someone's way of thinking perspective on something, um, you know, just outlook on life and the world in a, in a way that might not even be obvious. Uh, that, that to me is an impact as a writer. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Avital, her links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fedman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.